Take your Bibles, turn to Matthew chapter 5. Now, Coat talked last week, right? Was he here? He's supposed to be here, just making sure. And he talked about loving your enemies, correct? Because I told him that that's where we would be. And we were not yet there. Because we had skipped over. Some of you noticed that, right? We skipped over verses 38 through 42. So we're going back tonight. We went forward to go backwards, okay? So we're going to talk there. And I just want to read these to you. These are definitely verses we don't want to skip. They are some of the most controversial verses in all of Jesus' teaching. You have heard that it was said. That's a normal formula he's been doing, right? An eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I tell you, don't resist an evildoer. On the contrary, if anyone slaps you on your right cheek, turn the other one to him. If someone wants to sue you, take away your shirt. Let him have the coat as well. If anyone forces you to walk a mile, tell him, I'll go too. Give the one who asks you, don't turn away from the one who wants to borrow from you. Alright, so what's your initial reaction reading that? That's good, somebody else. What's your initial reaction? What were you saying, Miss Joan? It's hard to do? Why is it hard to do? Who wants to get slapped twice, right? So what do you mean by that, Mr. Cliff? It's unlikely to happen. Are you saying that the, 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 the actions he mentions are unlikely to happen or the reaction he requests are unlikely to happen? What was America founded on? Let's talk about that for a minute. Y'all remember your American history? We'll do a little lesson. So the Declaration of Independence, freedom and liberty, pursuit of happiness, all right? Then we have the Constitution, and the Constitution didn't go the first time. Why not? What they have to add to the Constitution to make it okay to pass? How many? What were the first set of amendments? There were ten of them. The Bill of Rights. We are a nation in some ways built on the rights of the individual. Correct? That the government should not have the ability to infringe upon our personal rights. The Constitution was out there, and they had the preamble and all that good stuff, and they go, oh, we got to have some stuff in there. And so they made these Bill of Rights, and most of those rights deal with things the government can't take away from us. Right? First Amendment is about freedom of speech. Second Amendment, bearing arms. Right? That's been hotly debated lately. Now, we're not going to go through them all, and I'm not here to debate them. I'm just saying that as an American country... Part of the reason we were founded is because we wanted to be in a place where we could act, think, do. We had rights as individuals given by our Creator that we did not want others to take away. And Jesus here says, it's not about your rights. I want you to imagine for a moment. Hearing chapter 5, verse 38 through 42 as an African-American living in Alabama in the 1950s. 
or as a Jewish person living in Europe in the 1930s? How do you hear this if you're a victim of injustice or bigotry or persecution? See, the problem we have for most of us in this room is we have never really been the subject of that kind of stuff. Now, we've had minor inconveniences or we've had things that have happened, but nothing like previous generations of people have us, have had. The problem with Jesus' teaching both here and throughout the Sermon on the Mount is a lot of it does not fit with what we see in the world, right? Most of us experience hatred and violence and injustice and persecution. And then we come to the words of Jesus and he says, turn the other cheek. Bless those who persecute, do good for those that harm. Give your shirt when they've already stolen your coat. It doesn't make any sense. Even if you've grown up in the church your whole life, you've been taught these verses. If you have them memorized, the fact is, when you come up against some kind of evil or danger, a lot of times these words get thrown out the window. I read this week about um, Eugene Peterson. Anybody know who Eugene Peterson is? Anybody ever heard of the message paraphrase of the Bible? The message paraphrase is done by Eugene Peterson. He said, I grew up in a Christian home with good parents. I was told the story of Jesus, instructed to live the right way, and then I went off to school and discovered the real world. He said that knowledge came to me in person in the name of Garrison Johns. So Garrison was a school bully. About the third day of school, he discovered me and took me on as his project for the year. I'd been taught in Sunday school not to fight. I'd memorized blessed are those who are persecuted. And I'd learned to turn the other cheek. But most afternoons after school, Garrison would catch up with me, beat me up. I tried to find alternative ways by making detours through alleys. But he stalked me and found me. And one day something unexpected happened. So I was with my neighborhood friends, seven or eight of them. When Garrison caught up with us and started in on me, jabbing and taunting, working himself up to the main event, and that's when it happened. Something snapped. Totally uncalculated, totally out of character. For just a moment, those Bible verses disappeared from my consciousness, and I grabbed Garrison. To my surprise and to his, I realized quickly I was stronger than he was. Wrestled him to the ground, sat on his chest, pinned his arms to the ground with my knees. I couldn't believe it. He was helpless. He was at my mercy. It was good. It was too good to be true. Peterson says, you know what I did in that moment? He said, in a Christian story, this is where I'd tell you, I realized the error of my ways. But what I did is I punched him in the face with my fist. It felt good, and I hit him again. Blood spurted from his nose, crimson on the snow. By this time, all the other children were cheering, egging me out. Black his eye out, bust his teeth. A torrent of vengeful, invective poured from them. I said to Garrett, say uncle, and he wouldn't. I hit him again, more blood, more cheering. And then the Christian training came up within me and I said, say I believe in Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. And he did. Karis and John's was the first convert I had to Christianity. Here's the problem with the Sermon on the Mount. In these passages in particular. We can learn them. We can study them. We can memorize them. But when we come face to face with Garrison Johns of the world, the Bible verses disappear. And the reality of dangerous, threatening, 
scary world in which we live. A world in which justice is hard to come by, when goodness is often hidden under the shadow of evil and hatred seems stronger than love. The problem with Jesus' teaching in the Sermon on the Mount is that it just doesn't fit with our experiences. So we have two options. Either we dismiss Jesus as absurd or we reevaluate our understanding of this world. Those are the two options because they both can't be right. One of them has to give. I want to look at it for just a moment, and I want us to remember the background of what he says. He says, you have heard it said, an eye for an eye or a tooth for a tooth. He's quoting the Old Testament. He's quoting a passage found in Exodus, Leviticus, and Deuteronomy. Now, what we fail to recognize often is that at the time this law was given to Moses by God, it was revolutionary. There was a major problem in the world with escalating retaliation. You insult me, I hit you. You hit me, I cut you. You cut me, I shoot you. You shoot me, I shoot your family. Sounds like the plot of every gangster movie ever made, right? You mess with me, you mess with the family, right? And there was this escalating violence. It went from not, oh, you hit me on the arm to you hit me on the other arm. And if you think that this isn't still a problem... Just have a couple of brothers, I don't know, three and a half years apart. That's just hypothetical. Well, he, well, he, well, I, well, I, and I, I had to because he, and because he did, I, I don't want to hear it. And it's never just, he took one of my Legos, so I took one of his. He took one of my Legos, so I took his whole set. Hypothetical. No, no, no real world stuff here, right? Escalating retaliation. So we have to remember that the eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth, was given to a specific culture, and the main intent was to control the excess. It was a sin deterrent. It was this check upon sin. God of grace and mercy is also the God of law who sets things around so that never in excess with the punishment be too much more than the crime. And we also have to remember, this was given to the nation, not to individuals. By the time we get to the scribes and Pharisees, and what Jesus has done throughout, is He's taken their interpretation of these passages from the Old Testament and said, they're wrong. The passage is not wrong. Your interpretation of the passage is wrong. And what He says to them is, this was never meant for individual justice to be carried out outside the system that was created by God to govern a country. Vengeance is mine, says the Lord, not yours. And the scribes and Pharisees had said, you are required if someone does something to you like this, you have to retaliate personally. Can you imagine the problems that that could cause? Jesus comes along. And in the Old Testament, it's an eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth, meaning the punishment shouldn't exceed the offense. You're not justified in retaliating worse for something somebody had done to you. He's putting a boundary on it. A check. A guardrail. His desire was to observe his people. The reason that's important is because we often come to the sermon out. Particularly these verses on vengeance. And we think that Jesus is saying the Old Testament law is bad. That's not what he's saying. In fact. I earlier said I didn't come to abolish it. I came to fulfill it. You remember talking about that several weeks ago? 
He's not saying eye for an eye, tooth for tooth is wrong or bad or evil or unjust. He recognized that it's a good command given to by God to put barriers, parameters, guardrails on people. But just because the law is good and just doesn't mean it's best. That's how we have to understand what Jesus is doing here and fulfilling it. It's giving us the greater understanding of the law. I read this week about a movie I've never seen. Maybe some of you have seen it and have a fuller understanding of it. I've never seen it, but I read kind of a synopsis of it. It's a 1962 film. um, That was kind of before me being alive. Called The Birdman of Alcatraz. Anybody ever seen that? Right? Burt Lancaster plays a convicted murderer named Robert Stroud. It's loosely based on a true story. Stroud's a convicted murderer. He's in Alcatraz. The core tension of the film is between Stroud the convict and the warden named Harvey Shoemaker. And after three decades together in the prison system, these two gentlemen get into an interesting conversation toward the end of the film. A tense conversation about the nature of rehabilitation. Here's a little bit of how that conversation went. Stroud the convict says to the warden, I wonder if you even know what rehabilitation means. The unabridged Webster's International Dictionary says it comes from the Latin root word habit. Habilitas, meaning to invest again with dignity. He said, do you consider that part of your job, Harvey? To give a man back the dignity he once had? Your only interest is how he behaves. You want your prisoners to dance out of the gate like puppets on a string with the rubber stamp values impressed by you and with your sense of conformity, your sense of behavior, even your sense of morality. And that's why you're a failure, Harvey. Because once they're outside, they're still lost. Just going through the motions of living. And underneath there is a deep, deep hatred. So the first chance they get to attack society, they do it. And the result, more than half of them end up right back here. Stroud's critique helps us understand the limitations of law in general. Laws may be good. Laws may be just. Laws may give us a sense of what's right and wrong, a sense of morality. Laws can put barriers, hedges, gates around how far evil is allowed to go. But what law cannot do is truly rehabilitate us. It cannot restore to us the dignity that God created within us in His image. What law cannot do is truly take the evil, the anger, the hatred out of our hearts. Sometimes we read what Jesus is saying here and we think that he came and he set up a more stringent law. That he took the law that was good and he made it harder. But that's not what he's saying. He's not giving us another law because as we've explained, law cannot truly rehabilitate. Jesus isn't giving us more rules to follow. What he's doing is illustrating a life from whom the law has truly come to reside in their hearts. He's illustrating what life looks like when God is now in control. When you have been rehabilitated by God Almighty and you begin to live fully immersed in his kingdom. Jesus is not saying that you now have to walk the second mile. That you now have to turn the other cheek. That you now have to give your tunic and your cloak. You don't have to do these things. What he's saying is that when you're set free, when you've been rehabilitated, the anger and the hatred and the evil at the root of who you are is gone. And vengeance itself has no root in your heart. 
So these things that he mentions become the kind of things you want to do. You want to walk the second mile. You want to turn the other cheek. You want to give of those who ask of you. Jesus is not laying another law. He's illustrating what it looks like when we have fully become followers of his. I heard a pastor one time preached on this, and the guy came up to me and goes, Okay, pastor, I hear you. It's transformation. It's inside. It's being set free. I got all that. But it still doesn't help. Because I'm never going to be that kind of person. The garrison johns in your life come, right? And before you know it, you're reacting instead of living. Don't resist an evildoer. Think about that phrase. What's the old quote? All it takes for evil to thrive is for good men to do nothing. What does Jesus say right here? Don't resist an evildoer. You know what? You gave me the perfect segue. Thank you, Carol. 1956. Let's talk about a guy we all know his name. Martin Luther King Jr. 20-something-year-old pastor, Baptist pastor in Montgomery, Alabama. Through some odd circumstances, he found himself as the leader of a a bus boycott that began when Rosa Parks refused to sit where they said she needed to sit. As the boycott progressed, King started hearing rumors that the authorities in Montgomery wanted to get rid of him. Now, in 1956, in Montgomery, Alabama, when the white authorities wanted to get rid of a black man, that meant... Something very specific. January 27th, King was asleep in a small home with his wife and his two-month-old baby girl. The phone rings. I can't quote exactly what the caller said because it would offend you more than my beard. But the essence of it was this, that if King was not out of town in three days, they were going to kill him and they were going to bomb his house. He hung up the phone, was so bothered, so disturbed, that he couldn't go back to get. So he poured himself a cup of coffee, sat down at his kitchen table, thought about his wife in the bedroom next door, his two-month-old baby girl down the, down the hall, and to use his language, he was paralyzed by fear, frozen by him. Now, most of us have not been in that situation. That doesn't mean we haven't been frozen by fear, paralyzed by it. Is my child okay? Is the diagnosis bad? Am I losing my job? Is my draft number up? The scenarios go on and on and on and on. Threatened by an outside force, we turn inward. We become paralyzed. Martin Luther King Jr. said as he sat at his table with a cup of coffee in his kitchen, something unexpected happened that changed the course of his life. You can make a case, change the course of American history. As he was sitting there with his hands and his face over his cup of coffee, confessing his fears and anxieties to God, King said that he felt a stirring in his soul that he'd never felt. And then he heard a voice, an inner voice, not an audible, but an inner voice. And this is what this said. Stand up for righteousness. Stand up for justice. Stand up for truth. And lo, I will be with you even until the end of the world. The voice promised to never, never leave me. Never leave me alone. Never Never, never, he promised he would never leave me alone. So in that moment, in the middle of the night, in the hour when darkness rang, King had a supernatural, inexplicable encounter with the living presence of God. And what changed King was this sense that God 
was with him, that God had drawn near to him. It changed his life. It changed his outlook. It changed his mission. It changed his perspective. It changed everything about the way he approached whoever. In fact, one pastor says that the key to understanding all of the Sermon on the Mount goes back to understanding something that King realized that night. Now, we've been in the Sermon on the Mount for weeks, and it's hard sometimes to get all that kind of together, and sometimes we lose the forest for the trees. But you remember what comes at the beginning, right? Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are the spiritual zeros. Blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are those who are sad. Blessed are those who wake at two in the morning over the cup of coffee, paralyzed by fear. Blessed are the persecuted, marginalized, hated, set apart. Blessed are you. What Jesus is saying, the overwhelming message he has at the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount and throughout is God is with you. He's on your side. The reason why that's so important is because if you and I truly believe that, I don't just mean we think it in our minds, but if we experience the reality of it and we live like it, it changes the way you see the world. Dallas Willard, who just passed away a few weeks ago, a great author, man of God, said that what you become to see is that we live in a God-bathed world. And when you see that, the only conclusion you can draw is that this world is a perfectly safe place in which to live. Now, when we first hear that, we think it's almost nuts, right? You watch the news. My wife got tons of questions about the riots in Brazil. Apparently, you also a whole lot more about the riots in Brazil than I did. Here's what I know. And I don't say this lightly, and I don't say this to sound spiritual. I knew... There were 15 of us doing the work of God where God called us to do the work and it was the safest place on the planet for us right then. So, Yeah, there were riots. There were riots at the airport the day before we flew back out. There was a protest in our little city where we worked. There were protests all over the country. There's still protests. But when you see the world as God, where I was working, there were people hungry for the gospel of Jesus Christ. So the protest didn't matter to me. Our perception of the world is it's a place where justice is hard to come by. You saw the news today, right? Supreme Court makes it seem like our country as a nation is slipping farther and farther away from whatever base of historical Judeo-Christian values we had. But listen, it doesn't change who we are. It doesn't change the love we have for them. To be honest, I was embarrassed a little bit by some of the things said by Christians and social media today, outraged. And outraged at people. And saying things about people. And I'm reading this passage. It's okay to be outraged that they are moving in a direction that seems contrary to God's will. It's not okay to hate them. Whoever them is. Our perception of the world is that it's a place where goodness is always marred by the shadow of evil. Our perception is that life itself is short supply, must be defended and fought for. But what if in this God with this universe, this God-bathed world, where have we lost? If God is for us, then who can be against us? We don't have to worry about injustice. We don't have to worry that injustice is going to get the last word, because guess what? It's not. We don't have to worry that it seems God is being defeated in the courts. Because guess what? He wins. No matter what they put out next week, He wins. 
no matter what they put out the day they're leaving to go on recess so that they don't have to answer questions about it, he wins. Life is not in short supply. Life is in abundance. Our lives will never end. Your life's at stake, so what? You're standing up for the Lord. They take advantage of you. They kill you. I know that it's tragic. I'm not saying any of us go and look that. I'm not talking about a martyrdom syndrome where we're looking to be persecuted. But if it happens and you're a follower of Jesus, you haven't died. You have entered into your eternal reward that is greater than we can ever imagine. So what? If I live, it's good. If I die, it's gain. Better. We don't have to be afraid. We don't have to be defensive. That doesn't mean that we can't defend the gospel, but we don't have to be defensive. In fact, the four things, we're going to talk about those real briefly. The four things that he talks about, the whole core of it is, is are you willing to give up on you having to be vindicated? What's the first one? If somebody does what? Slaps you where? Which cheek? Because that's important. Right. Were people in that day primarily right-handed or left-handed? They were right-handed because to be left-handed meant that you were evil. Y'all know what the left-handed, the Latin word for left is, don't you? Sinister. Not coincidental. I'm just, uh, just the facts. That's all I'm giving. All right. So here's the thing, all right? So Joyce, you're going to be my, I need you to stand up for a minute, okay? Because I want you to see this, all right? I know Joyce had a good lunch today, and so I'm not, I don't feel bad about this. All right, so you're going to turn this way, Joyce, okay? Now, if Joyce is right-handed, and she's going to slap me on my right cheek, how is she going to have to do that? Yeah, you can't, they didn't open up. Backhanded. All right, that's all. That's it. I'm not going to let you slap me, all right? What's the difference between this kind of slap and it was dismissive? It was an insulting slap. So it's not just the slap, it's the insult. Now what Jesus says, don't feel like you've got to defend yourself. Don't feel like your reputation is so valuable that you're going to cost the opportunity to share the gospel with someone because you can't stand an insult. Do you know how hard that is? Most of us are not going to be walking down the street and get slapped. I was in Brazil last week and you know, there, there were a couple of moments when I was walking around, I was checking everything, and we had to wait on something. And I, when I was a kid, I used to do this thing where I used to do, I think it's the Lone Ranger, the William Tell Overture with the... That, okay? And I was just doing that. I was just sitting there doing that. And one of the interpreters comes and goes, you might not want to do that. I said, well, why not? He goes, that tells everybody here, I'm ready for a fight. Who's ready? Okay, I'll stop, all right? Well, you know what I wanted to do the rest of the day? It's just in your mind. You want to... Okay? So most of us are not, unless we do that inadvertently, so we're going to get slapped, right? I cannot remember the last time I got slapped. And I won't ask you to give any examples, all right? But anybody been insulted? Talked about? Had your reputation questioned? Somebody said something about you that wasn't quite true? Now we're getting to meddling, right? Jesus says, turn the other way. Let them do it again. Don't get so caught up in defending your honor that you miss an opportunity to show love. There was a show that was on a few years ago. 
that you don't always pull good theological insights for, but this one I can. A show called Seinfeld. Anybody ever watch Seinfeld? One of my favorite characters in Seinfeld is George Costanza. Okay? George Costanza, there's an episode called The Comeback. And he's with this guy, and the guy zings him with an insult. And the whole rest of the show, George comes, tries to think of a comeback. And he works on different lines, and he says, I've got it. He calls to set up a meeting. And the guy has moved to Ohio to a new job. Works for um, Firestone, I believe. So George, who works for the Yankees, sets up a Firestone snow tire day at the ballpark. Has to fly to Ohio just to give the insult. Sits down, sets the scene, is working on, he's been working on this insult for months. The guy comes out with the zinger again, and George comes back. You know what happens immediately? The guy comes back with a better one. And it shows the ridiculous nature of trying to defend yourself against someone that is just trying to do you harm. Again, if you need any proof this happens, just imagine having sons that are about three and a half years apart. And one thinks one has violated the other's personal rights. Well, dad... He did this to me first. No, no, that's not what I did. And the argument begins. Jesus says, don't feel like you've got to come back. Someone sues you. Go out of your way to give them more than what they think they deserve. Somebody forces you to go a mile. In that place, the Roman guard could say, hey, I need you to walk a mile carrying my stuff. They do that, you go the extra. And if someone wants to borrow something, let them have it. You know what's at the core of all of these? Not defending your honor, your honor, your reputation. Giving people stuff when they ask for it. In fact, going above and beyond what they ask for. Walking an extra mile, just letting them borrow stuff. Is the realization that you are in a God-saturated world with God in control. And this is not your home. So what does it matter if they take your coat and your undershirt? So what does it matter if they take your lawnmower and they don't return it? God's in control. He'll take care of it. Trust Him. When you've lived a life that has been transformed by God, who has forgiven more than we could ever imagine in our own lives, that's how you want to live. Just four days after Martin Luther King's coffee cup conversion, his new vision of the world was put to test. Four days later, after sleepless nights at home, he was speaking at a rally for the bus boycott. At 9 o'clock at night, a young man ran into the service and announced that his house had just been bombed. The house where his wife and his two-month-old daughter were staying. King ran out of the rally ran down to the street, found his home still on fire. The police were there, the fire officials were there, and a large, angry mob of black citizens from Montgomery, Alabama, were around the house with guns, rifles, baseball bets, ready to riot because of this attack on their leader's home. King found out his daughter and his wife were safe. He went to the porch of his home that had just been firebombed by the Klan. He stood on a porch that was still burning. 
he looked at the angry crowd of citizens ready to riot, and King preached. I want you to love your enemies. Be good to them. Love them. Let them know that you love them. What we are doing here is right. What we are doing here is just. And God is with us. Go home with this glowing faith. Of all the things you can say about Martin Luther King Jr. Good, bad, and different. One thing you cannot deny is he was a great preacher. Think about the way he chose to use a sermon illustration. He's standing on a house that is literally on fire. And he says, go home with this glowing faith. With this radiant assurance. The night sky is ablaze with fire from his own home. And he says, go home with this glowing faith. With this radiant assurance. With love in our hearts. With faith and with God in front. We cannot lose. And then this angry mob put down their guns, put down their baseball bats, and spontaneously broke into amazing grace. They sang, they cried, they hugged, and peacefully went back to their homes with love in our hearts, with faith, and with God in front. We cannot lose. How do you turn the other cheek? How do you give someone your shirt and your coat? How do you go the extra mile? How do you give when people want to borrow? You do it out of a faith and a life that shows that God is in control and He has changed who you are. Doesn't mean it's easy, but it's right. Let's pray.